You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, uh, you can put the map away, guys. Um, The spiritual life is not as complicated as we've been led to believe, and God has given us six markers. And we're looking at these six markers during the six weeks of Lent together because the Israelites are on a journey from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land with God. The Apostle Paul says these things were written as an example for you, he says to the New Testament church, for us, that we might know how we can make the same journey. Six markers. Real concrete signs that lead the way. And we're paying attention to them. And it's just not that complicated. We saw the first marker last week. It's a river to carry. By which we understood that even before we think our first thought about God, he is leading us through the circumstances of our lives. God's at work in your life. That's a river to carry. That's the first marker. Pay attention. But the interesting thing is that that is not enough for God. For me, as a parent of teens, that would be enough. Get them from point A to point B. I don't care how it happens. That's not God's view. He doesn't just want us to make the journey to get where he wants us to be. He wants us to know him. He wants to invite us into relationship with him. And so we have the second marker, a flame to reveal. A moment in which God expresses his inner being to us and invites us in. Well, I got a feeling, if you're like me, God is burning something in your life right now. Let's uh, see what it might be. Would you open up the book of uh, Exodus to chapter 3? Our text today is Exodus 3, verses 1 through 6. You find that on page 44 of the Pew Bible. And if you're able, let's stand together and read God's word aloud. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now come speak to us, your people, for we are looking attentively and we want to know who our Savior is. Amen. 
God grabs Moses' attention so that he can draw him into his intention. God grabs his attention in order to fulfill in the life of Moses God's intention. Let's look at these two words, attention. First of all, we find Moses stumbling uh, into a scene that's rather barren. Horeb is its name. Horeb is the Hebrew word for desolation. There's not much here. It's dry as far as the eye can see. This may not even be the best place to graze my sheep, Moses would think to himself. It looks pretty desolate. And maybe you and I know what that's like too. Maybe we have journeyed through a place called Horeb, desolation. Maybe we have pitched our tent. Maybe we have lived in this place so long we have forgotten that there is any other place. Moses is a long way from home. Last we talked about Moses, he was a little boy, a little baby, snatched from the river in a basket, adopted by a princess in the Pharaoh's house, aged three or four, and they're educated. All the trappings of privilege and royalty. Things must have been pretty good for Moses. But that was then. And this is now. Moses is 80 years old. And I'm thinking at 80 years old, you know, you've seen a lot of life. And you you could be forgiven to think that it's not going to get much better. But Moses has a surprise in the midst of desolation. See, 40 years ago, uh, his enthusiasm for his people, the Hebrews, got the better of him and he killed an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. And he had a warrant for uh, his arrest. Uh, Pharaoh issued a death penalty on Moses and he fled. And then uh, he went east to a place in uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia called Midian, where he met His wife, Zipporah, father-in-law, Jethro, a Midianite priest. And uh, since then, he's been living in this distant land, away from his people. And he's taken up shepherding, which is something a Hebrew would have done. And he's now uh, watching Jethro's flocks. He's traveled uh, west with these flocks. He's away not only from the home of Israel, he's away from uh, the home in his uh, home in Egypt. Now he's away from his new home in Midian. He's been shepherding for 40 years, and he is several weeks away from Midian as he travels west, likely in look of uh, in search of green pastures for his flock. As the dry and arid lands do not yield much, he finds himself in this place called desolation, Horeb. But it's here that God gets his attention. It's interesting that the reader is told, tipped, to the fact that it is God getting Moses' attention. There are several features in the text. First of all, we're told that Horeb, in verse 1, is the mountain of God. If we know the story, we will recognize this as Mount Sinai, a very significant mountain. It, too, will blaze with fire. In several chapters, after the Israelites have been rescued from Egypt and God will burn on the mountain in his glory as he binds himself in covenant love to a people and give them the Ten Commandments. The mountain of God. This is no desolation, the reader thinks. 
And then there is this hint because it's a bush that catches Moses' attention. And the Hebrew word for bush is sineh, sineh, like Sinai, rhymes with that. That's interesting, too. And then the narrator actually goes ahead, in case you missed it, and tells us that this is an angel of the Lord in the bush who speaks for God, a messenger. We know all of this even when Moses knows nothing of it. To him, it just looks like a wasteland. It looks like a place like any place in life that you just got to pass through and you hope you get out of it before too long. It's just so mundane. I'm here with my sheep. I could just mail it in. You know, I kind of, I know the routine. But the reader is expectant. God is trying to get his attention. And it leads us to believe that maybe when life looks perfectly ordinary and mundane and normal, maybe God is trying to get our attention too. And we haven't been aware of his desire to speak into our lives. But here he is, this God who's come. Now, what catches Moses' attention, of course, is a burning bush. And that's interesting. I don't know about you, but I have never seen a burning bush like Moses saw. It's one thing to see a burning bush, but and Moses probably would have seen a number struck by lightning in a dry place like this, no big deal. But this burning bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. It's not being eaten, as the Hebrew says. That's sort of weird. It's freak you out if you see that. And, and I've never seen that, and I've never known anyone who's seen that or heard an audible voice issuing from a fire like that. I prayed for that a lot, actually. I've said, God, you know, I need your direction. I need you to speak into my life. I'm at a crossroads. I'm disoriented. I'm confused. I'm troubled. I'm lonely. Would you light something on fire and speak to me? <laughs> You're my only chance of having one last friend in life, you know. And I, it's never happened. But here's the thing to notice. It's just a bush. It's just an ordinary bush. That's all God uses. We've tend to think, oh, bushes that burn are significant. No, bushes that burn aren't significant. It's just an ordinary, plain old bush. It's not a bush that people would take pilgrimage to. It's not a bush at which you assume a certain spiritual posture to, to get ready to hear God speak. God just takes an ordinary, everyday thing and lights it on fire to catch Moses' attention. It's just kind of like the water, you know, when Jesus turns to wine. There's nothing special about the water. It's just water until Jesus touches it. And, and then it's a hugely important sign. And in the same way with this bush, there's nothing important about this bush. It could be anything, anyone, frankly, but God has chosen to use it. And now it becomes significant. It doesn't contain God, but God's presence is there. It's God present before Moses trying to intrigue him trying to trouble him, trying to make him curious. He wants to call out to Moses, but he, he's not able to do it apparently until Moses turns and looks. When Moses turns aside, he, Moses, I must turn aside and look at this great sight. And when the Lord sees that he's turned aside, then he's able to say, Moses, Moses, I have your attention. Elizabeth Barrett Browning in her long poem, Aurora Lee says, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God but only he who sees takes off his shoes the rest sit round it and pluck blackberries 
I wonder what God is doing in your life to try to catch your attention. There's something bright. There's something burning. There's something a little out of the order, ordinary. What is it? Could be a transition in your life. Could be a loss. Could be a promotion. Could be a friend who says, I'm no longer interested in you. Could be a joy, a celebration, a basketball that goes through a hoop. Something that catches your attention. Boredom. Boredom is an excellent catch attention getting device. You think, you know, I've worked so hard to get in this place, and now I, and I've got here, I realize, you know, it's really not what I thought it would be. Everybody believes my press, and I'm just not buying it myself. Or, you know, I finally moved into the house that I wanted to be in, but I'm realizing, you know, it's more of a slavery than a freedom that I thought of. And I'm here, and I'm just thinking there must be something more. Maybe God's trying to get your attention. The challenge, of course, when God grabs our attention is interpretation. How do you make sense of it? What is the meaning of this? What is God trying to say? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you, God. My ears are open to you, God. But what does it mean? I mean, it's not immediately obvious to Moses what a burning bush would mean. You and I think it has meaning because we know the story, but I, I don't know that Moses would have understood it. And, and we're reminded that you and I are so sinful and fallen and twisted that we have an infinite capacity for rationalization. And then we can make almost anything mean whatever we want it to mean for us. I mean, first of all, we could always downplay uh, these things that would otherwise uh, catch our attention. We could say, ah, oh, you know, that's just a, that's just a, a lightning strike or it's just, you know, it happens once every million years that a bush is burnt and not consumed. And I, you know, you, you could explain it away in a thousand different ways. Or maybe it's for somebody else. Maybe someone else is supposed to get some lesson out of this. My life's kind of going the direction it needs to be going, and I'm just going to keep on uh, keeping on in that, in that same way. So this is one of the great things about Lent. Lent is an opportunity for you and me to reorient our lives. Right? Because there's drift. We move off of our first principles. We move off the things that we think are important. Like when you're body surfing or swimming in the beach. You know, you know what this is like? Swimming for a while and then you look up and you go, oh my gosh, someone has stolen my towel. What's up with that? <laughs> they I stolen my towel. They've actually moved the house. You know? No, you've drifted. So even if God can get your attention in the subjectivity of that experience, you're just not sure you can interpret it right. Our task is to be honest and open before God's word and say, what do you... What do you want to say to me at this point in my life? And so God helps Moses with this. He, he addresses Moses and he identifies himself in this way. He says in verse 6, I am the God of your father. Remember Amon? Not a, not a biblical famous, uh, you know, one of the greatest. Uh, but Amon, remember your father? He was a man of faith. And then he opens up the aperture even wider. says, remember the God, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Remember those guys? It, there's a kind of an analogy that's developing. I'm the same God to you that I was to them, see? And that helps ground Moses' experience in a greater reality, in something that's objective, that the community has experienced. It's a, it's a context. There's an objective context for my subjective experience, and I can compare this experience I'm having with the experiences of others who have known and walked with the Lord. But can you imagine if Moses had walked by 
If Moses had, uh, this could be a very different story. He sees out of the corner of his eye this burning bush, and he goes, kind of weird, but I'm busy right now. Where's my sheep? You know, and just, and just walks right by. He would have missed God. He would have missed the moment that God chose in his life to get him, to get his attention. We don't want to miss that moment. We want to say with Moses, I must turn aside. But once God has gotten our attention, what does he want to do with it? This leads us to the second aspect that is God's intention. See, as I say, God grabs our attention in order to fulfill his intention. Let me read the second half of this passage, starting in verse 7. Here we get God's intention. God tells Moses, now that you and I are in communication, let me tell you what I want to do with this. And the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. To the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Jebusites. They cry out. They, the cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I've also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. Notice the repetition. He feels pretty strongly about this. He said this already. Now he says, so come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And the Lord said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name. Forever, this my title for all generations. My intention is to intervene on behalf of a whole nation, the Israelites. That's my intention. Oh, and Moses, I would like you to be the one to do that for me. And Moses says, what? Who am I? Who am I to go up against the king of Egypt? I think this is kind of interesting. You, you know, um, actually, think about it. Moses is pretty well qualified because he was raised in the Pharaoh's court. He's got these character qualities that have already seeped out in the narrative. You know, if you've, if you've been reading, you see Moses has a kind of a passion for justice. He, ha you know, he protected that Hebrew. He has a passion for reconciliation. He tried to bring two other Hebrews together. He has a passion for service. A stranger, this woman at the well, uh, who is being 
um, taken advantage of by some mean shepherds. You know, Moses says, come on, let me water your sheep for you. You know, all of this is he's done. He's qualified in some sense. I mean, God has made him fit for this particular task. But God doesn't bring any of that up. He knows it, but this is not the answer to Moses' question. The answer that Moses needs to hear is not, you are qualified. The answer that Moses needs to hear is, I will be with you. It's about the relationship. This is God's intention. I want to draw you into a relationship with me so that we can draw my people into a relationship with me so that they and I can draw the whole world into a relationship with me. That's my, that's my intention, actually. You know, I love Moses. You know, Moses, he goes, ah, I don't speak well. I'm not very eloquent. And I kind of get shaky knees around power. So I really don't think that I'm the guy to talk to the Pharaoh. And yet here he is talking to the creator of the universe. You know, <laughs> it's never occurred to you, Moses. <laughs> you're talking to a guy who made you uh, and the ground that you're standing on. But God doesn't call that to his attention. He's too gracious. He actually invites his question. This is a rich dialogue. Tell me more, Moses. Tell me more. Well, okay. Let me answer your question, Moses. The patience of God and his grace. Because he wants a relationship with Moses. See, it's not the mission. It's the relationship that God is using. That's why he's got his attention and that is his intention. Okay, but Moses does ask a really good question. Well, um, I hear you saying that I know who I am really more by knowing who you are, if I'm catching this right. But I'm a little bit concerned that when I get back to Egypt, the Hebrews are going to ask me who you are. So, with all due respect, who are you? You know, to whom am I speaking exactly? And God says, let me give you my name. Now, this name is the sacred name of the Lord. This is a profound moment in biblical revelation. Whenever you see the word Lord in the Bible, and it has all caps or small caps, it is a reference to the biblical name. The Hebrew there, four consonants, Y-H-W-H, oftentimes pronounced Yahweh. Don't really know how it should be pronounced because no one dared pronounce it. I even hesitate to say it. It's a sacred name. And it, and it comes from the verb to be. It's actually the third person singular form we would say, he is. And the Israelites have been using this name for generations. And there's been confusion about this because Exodus 6.3 seems to suggest that God had revealed himself previously by the name El Shaddai, and only now is Moses getting the name Yahweh. But in fact, what, what, uh, what God is saying to Moses is not, let me tell you what my name is, but let me tell you what it means. Let me tell you what my name means. You've been using this phrase, Yahweh, for a long time. He is for a long time. Now I'm going to tell you why that name has significance. And this is a phrase. He says, I am, notice the all caps, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. It's so profound. Sometimes I think, yeah, it kind of clarifies things, but it also draws me deeper and makes me want to know more. 
I think the way we understand what this name means is not to dive into metaphysical speculation of the nature of God's being. I think a better way to understand this name is to look at the context right here. When the Lord says, I am, what I think he's saying is, I am who I am in the context of this crisis. And you're going to see it. You're going to see who I am. The revelatory moment is not so much God pronouncing his name. It's when he shows up in Egypt and done what God has never done and that nobody has ever considered a God would do and deliver an entire people with mighty signs and wonders. Then you're going to know what it means to be I am. See, Moses knows that for 400 years, since the days of Joseph, Israelites have been enslaved. They've been crying out. They've been saying, where is this God, this Yahweh that was so faithful to our forebears? And Moses is now getting the explanation for the name. Because the Lord says in verse 7, notice the sensory data, I have observed the misery of my people. I've seen it. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. And no, here's the, here's the climax. Indeed, I know their sufferings. I've seen it, I've heard it, and this is the Hebrew word, know for experience, I have internalized their sufferings. This points to the cross of Jesus Christ. I know their sufferings inside my being, and who I am is about to be revealed as I redeem these people in the most dramatic of ways, as they become my people. This we see clearly in Exodus 6 as well. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You will be my people, he says. It's about relationship. That's my intention. I uh, learned grammar through the schoolhouse rock. Do any of you remember the cartoon, the schoolhouse rock? You're too young, Jeff. It's, you know, Mr. Morton is the subject of the sentence, and what the, what the subject says, what Mr. Morton says, the predicate does. Um, Mr. Morton is the subject of the sentence and what the predicate says he does the subject is a noun that's a person, place, or thing it's who or what the sentence is about and the predicate is the verb that's the action word that gets the subject up and out think of it I am I is the subject that's God the subject is a noun that's a person, place, or thing it's who or what the sentence is about I. And the predicate is the verb. That's the action word that gets the subject up and out. I am. My reality is about to get up and out and become the reality of the world. Because I've known the sufferings of my people. I know you're suffering. I know what you're going through. And I have a name for you too, he says. I am. Max Dupree says the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And that's exactly what God is doing for Moses. Let me, Moses, define your reality. Your reality will not be defined by servitude, will not be defined by grief, will not be defined by victimization, will not be defined by loss or anxiety or fear. Your reality, Moses, will be defined by who I am. 
I am who I am and ever will be, a God who is slow to anger and rich in grace. So Jesus gets it in John 10 where he uses a shepherd imagery, I think not accidentally. He says, I am the good shepherd. And then he says, let me tell you my intention. I have come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. That's why, that's why we're doing this. Peter and John understand that it is the name of Jesus Christ that defines their reality. They come upon tragedy. There's a man at the gate of a temple in Jerusalem, and he's crippled. He's lame, and he's begging, and they're moved. And they, and they say, you know, I, gold and silver have we none, but what we have we give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And he does. Friends, there's not always a physical miracle, but there is always the reality of the name of Jesus. Recalibrating, recharacterizing, redefining reality for us. So when they haul Peter and John before the authorities and say, really, you guys have got to stop this stuff. And they tell us first, what power or authority, what name do you do these things by? And they say, well, there's only one name. It's the name of Jesus Christ. God grabs Moses' attention in order to fulfill his intention. And if you can tell he's grabbing your attention today, he wants to do something with that. See, it's not about the bush. The bush is just a device to kind of, you know, break me out of my ADD kind of disparate attention band and say, George, George, it's about me. It's about who I am. See, and maybe you're hearing the same thing. Maybe the Lord is saying your name twice through something. It's bright and, and glowing and has not sort of fit in with all the other things. When God gets your attention, He wants to draw it from the bush to something far bigger, to His name, to a relationship with Him. He wants to draw you into His heart. Every one of us is going through something right now. Jesus says, I am the Word made flesh. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, He's the Word that enlightens every person. God is speaking. He's speaking. He's trying to get our attention. And, and this name will move from I am, or the Lord, or Yahweh, to Jesus, to as we understand biblical revelation further, the, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's in that Trinitarian name, the God who in His being is three and yet one, that we find the joy and love of relationship that defines our reality. James Houston writes, Divine revelation is not a speculative and theoretical knowledge of God as philosophers debate about, but the personal experience of divine love from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit that gives Christian theology its distinctive form of knowing. Let me just end with this. It's the end of the Gospel of, of Matthew, final words of Jesus, Great Commission we call it. But here's Jesus, pretty dramatic redemption, back from the dead. The cross is gone. And, and he looks at his followers and, and Matthew tells us some were doubting. You bet. 
I'm not sure what I'm looking at here. Kind of looks like something's on fire and it's not being consumed. It looks like nothing I've ever seen before. Jesus says, it's okay. Let me give you a name. You're to go baptizing in this name. It's the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, oh, by the way, be sure to know that wherever you go and that whatever you face, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you have come to bring such dramatic redemption from the, from the very heart of the Godhead. There comes a love so great that draws us in. We need to remember this, and we need to focus our attention on it, to be liberated by this reality. Help our unbelief. Help us to persevere. Help us to point it out to the people around us. To be like Moses, who really has been commissioned with good news, been sent with good news. And, and we've been sent with that same good news. May we speak it to one another. May we speak it around the world. For the glory of this great God, in whose name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio, or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.